Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Deborah Thebold McClendon, a licensed psychologist. She also has training in marriage and family therapy. Today, we're going to explore some of Deborah's work with anxiety, whether it is helping or hurting us, and tips for discerning between anxiety and spiritual promptings. Deborah has spoken about these topics widely at Education Week and other presentations. She's also written about these topics in the Enzyme. She wrote a two-part article. The first was published uh, in April 2019, the second in September 2019. These are digital content-only articles, but you can find them on your LDS app. The first is called Discerning Your Feelings, Anxiety, or the Spirit. And the second is Understanding Scrupulosity, Religious OCD. Most of us have experienced periods in our lives when we felt uncomfortable, levels of anxiety. I know I have. What do you consider the principal symptoms of anxiety? So anxiety is something we've all experienced. It's one of those emotions that um, are natural to us. So we have feelings of jitteriness, nervousness, heart racing, maybe sweating, uh, maybe a little shortness of breath. They're not very comfortable feelings, but they're normal. And um, they're there to actually help us to prepare us for action. What kind of activities promote anxiety? Do they differ by individuals? I think the research on flow speaks a lot to that. The research on flow says that if an activity is not challenging enough for us, we get bored. It doesn't stimulate us. It's not going to worry us. We feel absolutely competent to the point where it doesn't challenge us at all. If the challenge is too hard, maybe our skill level is not up to par, that's when we start to feel frustrated or anxious. And that research shows that what we want to do as we um, look at our activities in life is we want to modify them to try to get them between that range. We want to be able to enjoy an activity in an effortless way without so much exertion that we're actually creating anxiety. So for a lot of us, we might feel anxious if we're asked to give a sacrament meeting talk and maybe we don't feel like we're a good public speaker or we don't feel like we have good doctrinal understanding. So it elevates our anxiety because we don't feel up to the challenge, right? Listening to you, I'm thinking it's a response to our feelings of inadequacy. In many situations, yes. And our discomfort with the situation. Yes. And really not accepting what that situation requires. So we might want to try to control how we appear in a situation. 
So we might really start to get anxious in maybe a social situation if we want to make sure people have a good opinion of us or something like that. If we walk into a situation with full acceptance, we don't have that anxiety because we just allow things to be what they are. But I, I've had many situations in life where I didn't feel up to the task. I remember singing an a cappella quartet in sacrament meeting one time. <laughs> an a cappella is very challenging. And I was shaking my legs. who were shaking the whole time we were singing because I didn't feel like I was a good enough singer and I really wasn't. So I understood. And so that created a lot of anxiety. I've had a lot of other situations where I can stand in front of a group of several hundred people and feel no anxiety at all because I felt competent and able to do that. So I was in that zone of flow, mm -hmm. right? But in that quartet example, I was in that higher agitation and anxiety level because the skill level required to sing a cappella was higher than where I really was. So that gives us a good way to think about modifying our experiences. We can scale back sometimes things to match where we are, and then our anxiety will come down. Does it have anything to do with expectations we have for certain situations? We want to perform to a certain level. We want things to go a certain way. So we have these high expectations that yeah. we know we can't meet. I, I would agree. I, when we have expectations, it becomes very challenging for us emotionally if those expectations aren't met. So again, we're trying to control. Control is a real problem in anxiety disorders and especially in obsessive compulsive disorder. So I like to talk with people about the idea of changing expectations into hopes. Hopes allow for a lot more flexibility, but expectations are pretty rigid, right? So that control piece with the expectations. What do you mean by control? So if I am highly invested in a particular outcome, then I am working very hard cognitively to make sure that that happens. So for example, in obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, they may have a thought that they don't like. It's not okay with them. It threatens them in some way. They're uncomfortable with it. So they try to control that thought to make it go away. By trying to control the thought, it actually escalates the frequency of the thought and the problem grows worse. And I think we've all had experiences in life where as we try to exert control, think about trying to control a two-year-old. <laughs> it doesn't work very well. So control is a real problem. And I think expectations brings in a lot of element of control. This is going to happen. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to create this outcome no matter what. Whereas if we have hopes, they're a lot more flexible and we work towards the desired outcome but if that desired outcome doesn't come, it's not emotionally just crushing for us. Right, right. Unmet expectations are very, very challenging. But if we hope for something and it doesn't happen, we can usually move through that with, with some disappointment, of course. But Anxiety is an incredibly uncomfortable emotion. But let's talk a little bit more about when it's normal. Right. So anxiety prepares us for action. So it is absolutely normal if you're getting ready to give a presentation for work or 
to do something in a church setting that's kind of public to feel nervous. That is absolutely normal. And that is anxiety preparing you for action. Your body, physiologically, everything focuses in and it heightens our senses to help us focus on only exactly what we need to focus on. Everything else kind of fades away. So it helps prepare us for performance, for action. Um, If there's a threat that we need to be careful of, it warns us of that. So anxiety is very helpful in many ways, but it can become problematic as we were discussing. We talked about expectation. We talked about control. If anxiety is becoming persistent, where somebody feels like they're not able to control it, and it's getting in the way of their ability to function in their lives, that's where you can kind of take a step back and say, this might be more of an anxiety problem now, maybe going into being an anxiety disorder. It's difficult because we all have anxiety, but it's on a spectrum. And when we get to the point where anxiety is kind of taking over our lives and we're changing our lives to satisfy anxiety, trying to get anxiety to go away at different times, that's where it really becomes a problem. As I talk about anxiety kind of being on this spectrum, it's important to note that moderate levels of anxiety are adaptive. They actually help us improve performance. So if we are not anxious about something, we usually don't do as well. It's when our anxiety gets so high that we choke, then anxiety has become a problem. So many people have had those experiences probably in college, trying to go take a test, and they studied the material, they know it, and they totally choke. They can't remember the information. The idea is anxiety is adaptive. It's important. It helps us. It prepares us for action. And we actually perform better if our anxiety is at a low to moderate level. It's when our anxiety gets very high that it causes us problems. Some of those problems I talked about as things persist and they take over our lives uh, become things such as chronic worrying or phobias or irrational fears, performance anxiety, public speaking anxiety, shyness or panic attacks, agoraphobia is an interesting one. Agoraphobia is a word that means fear of the marketplace. So these are people who have extreme anxiety and even panic attacks about being in places where there are many people and it would be hard to escape if they were feeling anxious or if they had a panic attack and they'd be noticed. So they literally end up closing themselves in to their homes and kind of become homebound because they're nervous about going outside. Obsessions and compulsions, that's the OCD disorder that I work with mostly. There are concerns about appearance. It's called body dysmorphic disorder. And that's a very interesting one where somebody fears that they have a gross abnormality for some part of their body that is just so noticeable to everybody that it creates this panic and fear. The interesting thing is whichever body part they're obsessing about is actually completely normal. Nobody would look at them and think there was a problem. But the fear and the anxiety has grown so much that that becomes an issue. And those people end up usually in cosmetic surgeons' offices and not psychology clinics. And then worries about health in our culture. People talk a lot about being a hypochondriac. That's the kind of thing. So those are some of the anxiety disorders 
when anxiety has gotten so high that people are really being um, inhibited in their lives by that anxiety? I think some of us have experienced these type of things, but maybe not at a pathological level. Right. This kind of anxiety kind of starts this vicious cycle that makes it worse and worse. Is there a way to reverse that cycle before it gets to the point of pathology? Yes, and I think you would do it the same way that psychologists work or other therapists work with anxiety disorders. Anxiety requires kind of a paradoxical approach. Anxiety pushes us because of the uncomfortable nature of the symptoms to avoid the things that are causing us our fear. And paradoxically, the way to challenge that is to face those fears head on. So if you have a public speaking anxiety, instead of turning down the opportunity to speak in church or such, you actually challenge yourself to do the thing that you fear. As you do that, what's very interesting is not only do you take in new information that allows you to kind of restructure your experience with anxiety in that situation, but you learn that anxiety will come down on its own without you having to do something weird to get rid of it. And it will then help you increase your sense of confidence and competence that you can manage your own anxiety symptoms. So just along the line, whether you have mild symptoms or extreme symptoms, instead of avoiding the things that are bothering you, because that will start to shut your world down, just like we talked about with agoraphobia, where these people be, literally become homebound. They just shut their whole lives down. You open your life up by challenging those things and pushing through them. And in time, they don't cause you anxiety anymore. What kind of mechanism do you think is working there? Do you think it's because your competency is growing? Your expectations are lowering? You realize what you have control over and what you don't have control over? Is it a mixture of all of these elements? Yes, and, and also neuroscience as well. You're bringing in new information. You're creating new neural pathways every time we do something every experience we have in life, we're restructuring our brain. So when we face our anxiety, our anxiety actually will increase. It'll make you nervous to do the thing that you fear. But as you stay in that situation long enough, you'll find that your symptoms decrease on their own. And you'll get to a place where you can feel comfortable even though you're in the anxiety producing situation. And that level of comfort is called habituation. You hear the word habit in that word. When something becomes a habit to us, we do it without thinking. When we get to that level of a habituation, our brains have basically gotten bored with the stimulus. So it's not bothering us anymore. So that's an important piece too. So boredom is a blessing. <laughs> in anxiety treatment, it really is. When I do exposure therapy with clients, which is basically what we just kind of talked about, I tell them that they need to stay in that situation long enough that not only their anxiety has come down, but they're bored with the exercise and then they get irritated with me because I made them do it. And that's the level that we want to get to. But that's a very difficult thing because the whole time they're so physically aroused, uncomfortable, oh, aroused, yes. on edge. 
I'm wondering if some people are more prone to anxiety than others. Yes, there are people that are more likely to develop anxiety disorders, such as maybe they worry more, they tend to be more perfectionistic. And these are people that are high in something that they call anxiety sensitivity. And basically, they're sensitive to their own anxiety. They're afraid of it. And they're having anxiety about having anxiety. So as these symptoms, which are very uncomfortable, rise within them, they then tune into those symptoms, their focus narrows, and they're focusing on their internal experience of these symptoms. And somebody with this anxiety sensitivity is five times more likely to develop an anxiety disorder. So that's an important piece. There's also an information processing piece. Anxious individuals are drawn to threatening stimuli more so than somebody without anxiety. They'll dwell on it longer, They'll tend to interpret information in a threatening way, even if maybe it's kind of neutral or ambiguous. So they have selective attention. They tend to expect the negative and they have a harder time ignoring it. That's an information processing piece of those who do have anxiety. Another piece, though, that I think contributes to uh, maybe those who may develop anxiety is an intolerance of uncertainty. Fear of the unknown, persistent thoughts about the unknown, and that focus increases anxiety. Again, going back to that idea of control that we talked about, if you want to control everything and now you can't and it's uncertain, that causes anxiety. I'm wondering about these personality traits. My husband will sometimes say to me, why do these things bother you so much? And my only response is, I don't know why, they just do. Can I change that in me? Or is it more a situation where I just need to acknowledge that that's there and cope with it in healthy ways? Someone who is looking at their own anxiety situation at home can certainly through psychoeducation, through information such as we're presenting today, be more aware. And I think that's the first step on the battle to anxiety treatment. If you can catch yourself in that moment and label it and say, this is anxiety, then usually you can step back emotionally, take a breath, and maybe do something that will be adaptive and healthy for you. What happens in anxiety, as we're talking about, is these symptoms are so compellingly difficult that somebody kind of gets sucked down the rabbit hole before they even realize what's happened. So I want to talk about that a little bit more, because you said people with anxiety realize that they're having these symptoms and they obsess on them. How would that look? To me, I think it would look like you realize that your, your heartbeat has increased And then you're like, oh my gosh, my heartbeat has increased. I'm experiencing anxiety. What am I going to do? I have this anxiety. Yeah. And now I may get sick and or my voice is going to stutter and oh no, what are people going to think of me? And it just grows and grows and grows. But yet the focus always stays inward. And that's kind of an interesting piece is as the anxiety comes, the physical symptoms heighten And as we then narrow our attention towards those physical symptoms, they increase even more. And so because they become so uncomfortable, that's when people usually will escape or avoid whatever is bothering them. I'm not going to go 
to this party because I can't risk the social judgments from everybody or whatever it is they might avoid. And the avoidance reinforces the anxiety cycle. How does anxiety affect a person's receptivity to spiritual promptings? So we talked earlier about how moderate levels of anxiety are helpful, but high levels cause impairment. That happens spiritually as well. If we have a moderate level of anxiety, perhaps about our spiritual welfare or any such thing, it's going to motivate us to maybe study more or engage others in doctrinal discussions because we're motivated. But if our anxiety gets too high, it can become crippling and impair us. There are, interestingly, some Book of Mormon examples about anxiety. If you look for things in the scriptures, you can always find them. It's kind of fun. So moderate levels of anxiety helped prophets work more diligently for their people. And we have some scriptures in 2 Nephi and in Jacob, and I'll just share these with you. 2 Nephi 1, 16. I desire that ye should remember to observe the statutes and the judgments of the Lord. Behold, this hath been the anxiety of my soul. And 2 Nephi 6, 3. Mine anxiety is great for you. I have exhorted you with all diligence. And Jacob 1, 5. Because of faith and great anxiety, it truly had been made manifest unto us concerning our people. He was motivated for his people and for their welfare, and he thought a lot about them and worked very hard, and that anxiety was part of what motivated him. There's also a scripture in Jacob where he kind of references this idea that if we have too much anxiety, if it's unregulated or out of control, it actually will impair our ability to perform even spiritually. He says in Jacob 4.18, Behold, I will unfold this mystery unto you. If I do not by any means get shaken from my firmness in the spirit and stumble because of my over-anxiety for you. So that idea of stumbling spiritually, it can become very difficult to discern spiritual promptings when we have our anxiety symptoms going. Physiologically, we are aroused. We have cortisol. We have adrenaline. We've got this rapid heartbeat we talked about or this shaking or this sweating or this nervousness. It's very difficult to discern the gentle promptings of the spirit when our body is aroused to such a high level. Think about trying to pray and you're trying to make a decision about something and you're trying to discern an answer. And we know that that's a very sensitive process but maybe we're anxious because of some expectation that we might have. It becomes very challenging. You quote Elder Neil A. Maxwell, who said there's a difference between anxiously engaged and being over-anxious. You spoke a little bit about the difficulty of perceiving spiritual promptings when we're anxious. I think many of us at times struggle with knowing the difference between thoughts in our brain that are rooted in anxiety and spiritual promptings. You've created a wonderful table comparing the two. Can you explain some of the differences between anxiety and spiritual promptings? Sure. And for the listeners, this table is available in the first Enzyme article 
uh, that was published in April 2019. So the chart is right there for you to look at. And in this chart, um, I present some characteristics of anxiety in the spirit and then some of the feelings that come along with those. So one of the characteristics of anxiety that we talked about already is that it's future-oriented. This is a really important piece, and I think it goes into that idea of the fear of uncertainty. With anxiety, it's preparing us for future action in an, in a normative situation. But in a, in a toxic anxiety situation where we've maybe gotten to the point where we're having some sort of anxiety problem, that future orientedness becomes a problem because we get spinning off into all the what ifs for next year or next decade or what happens to my children or what happens to my grandchildren and it becomes just so big that we can't deal with it. When the spirit is trying to communicate with us, it really tends to stay present focused and it will tell you, here's what you need to do now, step by step, line upon line. And the spirit's not telling us 20 years from now, here's what I'm going to have you do. So those are some characteristics that are really important for identifying, is this the spirit or is this anxiety? Am I in the present moment or am I in the future? Anxiety often gets generalized to other areas, whereas the spirit will tend to stay in a pretty specific, narrow focus about the answer to the question, here's what you need to do. You need to do this or do that, X, Y, or Z. Whereas anxiety will just be like, ah, oh, now I got to do this. Now I got to do this. And all of a sudden, you've got 50 things on your plate that you think you have to do. Anxiety gets progressively more intense and distressing, as I just sort of illustrated, as it grows and gets more generalized. Whereas the spirit, even if you have some discomfort, for example, sometimes the spirit tells us we need to repent when we have done something wrong. And that is an uncomfortable feeling. If it's from the spirit that uncomfortable feeling will diminish as we repent. If it's anxiety driving this sense of needing to repent, we can repent and we still won't feel better. Anxiety will just get worse and worse, whereas the spirit will allow us to feel more comfortable as we move forward with what we need to do. Some of the feelings that we've talked about in anxiety, you are worried or unsettled or agitated. But when we are experiencing the spirit, we're going to feel calm, even if there's feelings of dissonance, even if we have truly sinned and we need to repent, there will be a calmness. But if it's the anxiety saying, oh, you need to repent, you need to do this, you need to do that, we, we won't feel, we won't feel calm there. Richard G. Scott has said two indicators that a feeling or prompting comes from God are that it produces peace in your heart and a quiet, warm feeling. Some other feelings, anxiety, you will feel fear or panic or a sense of crisis for even minor issues. But if it's the spirit, you may have an urge to act, but it will be with purpose. You'll understand what it is that you're doing. Anxiety is very impulsive. That's one of the most pronounced features I see. It's very impulsive. And I think it's because the physical sensations are so compelling. And the anxiety is like, do it now, do it now. The spirit isn't like that. The spirit gives us space to ponder and to grow and to journey. So even if we, again, have maybe done something wrong, the spirit lets us ponder that and work through that to get to the point where we say, yeah, I, 
I need to go apologize to this person, or I need to go repent, uh, talk to Heavenly Father about that, or perhaps I need to go talk to my bishop. The Spirit will not say, repent now or you're going to hell. But anxiety says that. It's very, very damning. So one individual shared their anxiety story with me, and he had that exact same feeling during his panic attacks. He said, quote, you feel like this is the spirit and you have to do it right now or you're going to go to hell. And I've had a lot of clients talk about that. It's terrifying to feel like your eternal salvation is on the line for something. So this individual learned, again, this idea of space to ponder. He said, okay, if you feel this way in two days, you can act on it. If not, you know what was going on. So knowing that the Spirit will give us space to ponder, if this is something you need to act on two days later, the Spirit will say, yeah, you still need to act on it. But if it's anxiety, usually two days later, you're on to something else. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And very helpful as well. Okay, so this individual recognized that revelation doesn't actually come as easily as anxiety makes you think it's coming. Anxiety, just a thought comes into your mind and you're like, boom, that's it. I've got to do it and I've got to act on it right now. And he took an example from Richard G. Scott's talk, 2009, to acquire spiritual guidance. And in this talk, Richard G. Scott talked about a situation where he attended some gospel doctrine lessons and an elders quorum lesson, I think, in some uh, different wards. And he showed us that revelation is not so easy, that it's a developmental process. So here are some things that Richard G. Scott said that he did to receive revelation. Strong impressions began to flow. Okay, so that happens with anxiety, too. You get really strong impressions. But here's what happened. He wrote them down. He sought a more private location, and he continued to write the feelings that flooded into his mind and heart as faithfully as possible. After each powerful impression was recorded, this is Richard G. Scott, he says, I pondered the feelings I had received to determine if I had accurately expressed them in writing. I made a few minor changes to what had been written. I studied their meaning and application in my own life. I prayed, reviewing with the Lord what I thought I had been taught by the Spirit. When a feeling of peace came, I thanked him for the guidance given. I was then impressed to ask, was there yet more to be given? I received further impressions. The process of writing down the impressions, pondering, and praying for confirmation was repeated. Again, I was prompted to ask, is there more I should know? And there was. And I love that example. Revelation takes a lot of work, a lot of pondering, a lot of prayer, recording things to make sure we're accurately receiving the promptings, that experience helped this individual realize that the impulsive nature of anxiety was not how the spirit worked. You are a clinical psychologist, and you see all kinds of different anxiety disorders besides just the general anxiety we've been discussing, such as obsessive compulsive disorder. Some of us joke that we have obsessive compulsive disorder just because we like things clean and neat and orderly, but there's a point where this crosses over to a pathological condition, which is kind of a loaded term. How common is obsessive compulsive disorder? 
So obsessive compulsive disorder has a prevalence rate of about 1%. In fact, all of the um, disorders out there tend to range around the 1%. So it's not a huge part of the population. We wouldn't consider it a disorder if 80% of us functioned this way. So we, if we think about disorders, we think about an aberration of some sort. And it's different than than the way most people function. So a lifetime prevalence of two to two and a half percent, people may have those. You write about scrupulosity, which is a subset of OCD. What is scrupulosity? The name scrupulosity is literally derived from the Latin word scrupulum, which means small stone. So it evokes the image of having a little pebble stuck in our shoe, right? The later definitional shifts into a term that originated in apothecary's weights, the tiniest of weights that only affected the most sensitive of scales, and entered the religious vocabulary to describe people with overconcern and hesitation concerning all areas of appetite of behavior and commonly, quote, assailed by naughty and blasphemous thoughts. And that's one researcher, the way that they talked about scrupulosity. A cardinal feature of scrupulosity is persistent uncertainty. Again, we're talking about that uncertainty, leading to anxiety and fear about whether one has committed a religious or moral sin. It becomes an overuse or over application of religious principles, and they become overly strict and rigid in their code of religious, moral, or ethical conduct. So they may have fears of offending God, fears of blasphemy, fears of doing immoral acts, or having immoral thoughts, or fears of sinning. I guess I'd, I'd like to share this. Bishop John Moore of Norwich in 1691 gave the first public address on scrupulosity, and he referred to it as a religious melancholy. And I'd like to share this quote because I think it illustrates a lot of important pieces. He says that scrupulosity is, quote, a flatness in their minds, which makes them fear that what they do is so defective and unfit to be presented unto God that he will not accept it. They experience naughty and sometimes blasphemous thoughts, which start in their minds while they are exercised in the worship of God. Despite all their endeavors to stifle and suppress them, that's that issue of control that we've talked about, the more they struggle with them, the more they increase. They are mostly good people, for bad men rarely know anything of these kind of thoughts. You also mentioned the story of Martin Luther, who suffered from scrupulosity. How did this affect his behavior? So the story of Martin Luther... Um, is exceedingly interesting to me. And Daniel K. Judd wrote an article in 2016 called The Clinical and Pastoral Implications of the Ministry of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. And this is where I got the information for that. So if listeners are interested in more detail, I would recommend them to the original source by Daniel Judd. Daniel Judd said that Martin Luther, quote, confessed frequently, often daily, and for as long as six hours on a single occasion. The confession piece becomes a very difficult compulsion for those with scrupulosity because they want to be relieved of the burdens that they feel, the guilt, the torment that they feel 
for the fears of having sinned and that uncertainty of whether they will be condemned by God or not. So confession is something that they do to try to relieve that anxiety. The problem is, in scrupulosity, it's not about a religious sensitivity. It's actually about high, unregulated anxiety. So you can confess, which becomes an avoidance behavior, if we were talking about that anxiety cycle we talked about earlier. So the anxiety comes down a little bit after confession, and then it just comes right back up in full-blown, it's a very temporary relief. And the anxiety comes back, so you feel like you have to confess again, and it becomes this horrible cycle. So Martin Luther confessed most often to Johannes von Staupitz, the vicar of the Augustinian order. He said this, quote, I often made confession to Staupitz. He said, I don't understand you. This was real consolation. Afterward, when I went to another confessor, I had the same experience. In short, no confessor wanted to have anything to do with me. Then I thought, nobody has this temptation but you. And I became as dead as a corpse. And here's another one. He said, Father Staupitz tried to ease his guilt by explaining that his sins were not serious. Quote, if you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something to forgive. Parasite, blasphemy, adultery, instead of all of these little peccadilloes. So a peccadillo is a small, relatively unimportant offense or sin. So this is why I believe Daniel K. Judd and other researchers believe that Martin Luther had scrupulosity, because we can certainly look back from our perspective in 2020 and try to judge somebody and say they had this disorder, they had that disorder. You can't really do that because we're out of cultural context and things are different we don't know. But one of the main clues to whether someone has struggling with scrupulosity or not is to say, do others in your faith community have these same beliefs or behaviors, right? So because his own confessors, his own peers are saying to him, I don't get it. I don't understand why this is tormenting you. As I've read through that, it it's exactly the things that my clients today struggle with. In other words, with scrupulosity, reassurance, even by those who are in authority, it doesn't work because you have to address the core of the issue, which is anxiety and that fear of uncertainty. Do you have some stories you're willing to share with us about clients in the Latter-day Saint culture who've dealt with scrupulosity? So one individual published his story in the September 2019 Enzyme, and they published that along with my article on understanding scrupulosity. And he was a missionary that was struggling with scrupulosity, and he said this, over the course of six weeks, I met with the branch president at the MTC and confessed six times. I always remembered more, more times when I had, and then, you know, what have I done, right? I've done this, I've done that, or whatever. Just the anxiety will just help you find the, the most minute things that you think may have been a problem, and then confessing those things. And then he says this, at one point in the MTC, I emailed my dad asking if I needed to confess yet another past quote-unquote sin that I had thought of. When he told me that I hadn't done anything wrong, it didn't bring me relief. Instead, I took it as a sign that Satan was using my family's mercy to lull me into complacency. I grew convinced that I would have to endure alone, and I confessed again. And that was Derek Baker, September 2019, Enzyme article in the digital content section. 
Is a religious person more prone to this condition? So that's just such a fascinating thing. Because it's OCD, OCD is non-discriminatory. All groups, all people can get OCD. Someone who is religious, if they get OCD, they may be more prone to get OCD in the scrupulosity flavor. I like to use the word flavor. If they don't have OCD, they're not going to get scrupulosity because they're religious. Religiosity does not create OCD. That's a good point to make because that's actually a criticism of organized religion. So no study to date has found that a religious upbringing induces OCD. However, if OCD develops in an individual who is very religious, then they may tend to have that expressed in the OCD. Conservative Christians tend to be more inclined towards scrupulosity than low religious individuals. But what's been very interesting in the research I've found, you can actually get scrupulosity even if you're an atheist or not religious at all. Uh, But it does tend to be more prevalent in those who are religious. Thank you for sharing your research today. If our listeners want to get more information, you have a couple websites. Can you share those with us? So I have my website, which is debramcclendon.com, D-E-B-R-A-M-C-C-L-E-N-D-O-N. And on that website, I have links to these Enzyme articles. I have newspaper write-ups on presentations that I've done. So there's some self-help resources there. There's also information on that website about a book that my husband and I have co-authored that came out in 2018, and it's called Commitment to the Covenant, Strengthening the Me, We, and the of Marriage. And we believe it's a wonderful resources for anyone, whether it's somebody who's just dating and wanting to know how relationships work because they want to get married or all the way through newlyweds or people who've been married for 50, 60 years. We go through um, a lot of the doctrinal and uh, general authority types of information around marriage. We cover the social science around marriage, um, sociology psychology. And then we share our own personal marriage stories, which is always very fun and exciting to get a look into somebody else's life. And then we also share a lot of anonymous stories from other couples. So our hope is that anybody that opens that book can find something that speaks to them. So that resource is there also. And the book does have its own Facebook page as well. So you can look that up there and the link is on my website. So the website will be an important resource. Thank you, Deborah, so much for your time. You're welcome. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.